It's the story of what happened the day that Matthew met Jesus. Now, the truth is, actually, before this story even happened, uh, Matthew must have known who Jesus was, um, at least to look at. Because, you see, Matthew lived in Jesus' hometown. And the disciples must have known who Matthew was as well. I suspect they knew rather too well. You see, Matthew was the local tax collector. And uh, every time the disciples came into town after a hard night's fishing to sell what they had uh, caught, they heard Matthew calling out from behind his little desk at the city gate, saying, good fishing last night, gents. By which he meant, aren't you forgetting that some of that money you've earned belongs to me? You see, Matthew worked for the greedy king who lived in a big palace just down the coast. We've got a picture of him too. Here he is. And every time that uh, anything got bought or sold in Jesus' hometown, when Matthew saw it, it was his job to take a slice of uh, the money for the king and, uh, of course, a little slice for himself too. So when um, people came into town to sell their grain, maybe, um, it was Matthew's job, if he saw it, um, to say, oh, excuse me, um, I'll have a little bit of that, thank you. And uh, ka-ching, off went the, the cash. Come on. We've got some technology glitches here this morning. Ooh. Eventually, the cash always goes. Um, um, if someone came into town to sell their sheep, maybe, uh, and Matthew saw it, he said, oh, excuse me, I'll have a little slice of that, thank you. And uh, ka-ching, off went the cash. Come on. Eventually, it always goes. Um, If someone came into town with fish to sell, just like the disciples would often do, um, and they are, and Matthew saw it, he would say, ah, some of that belongs to me, thank you very much. And uh, off it would go. And so, as I'm sure you can imagine, Matthew wasn't that popular with the people who lived in Jesus' hometown. He was rich and powerful, but sad and lonely. People said rude things about Matthew behind his back. Nobody wanted to be the kind of person that Matthew was. But there were some people in Jesus' hometown that everybody wanted to be like. And I've got a picture of them too. Here they are. There were some people who said they didn't like the greedy king who lived in the palace just down the coast. They said they didn't like his tax collectors either. They were brave and brainy and everyone looked up to them. These guys were called the Pharisees. So you see, this is a story about two different kinds of people. It's a story about some people who uh, had lots of friends and some people, one person in particular, who didn't have any. It's a story about some people who everybody looked up to, and it's a story about somebody else who no one looked up to. Now, I wonder, do you know those two different kinds of people? Maybe one of those two different kinds of people is you. Well, one day, Jesus and his disciples came walking into town. Here we go. And as they passed through the city gate... Matthew saw their familiar faces and he got ready to say what he always said, good fishing last night, gents. But this time, 
something unusual happened. Jesus walked straight up to Matthew's little desk. He looked him in the eye, sitting there with his bags of money. And what do you think he said? He said, follow me. And Matthew stood up and he followed him. Now that's not what we would have been expecting if we'd been there at the time, is it? I'm sure that isn't what the other disciples were expecting and I'm sure they weren't very pleased about it when it happened. How would you like it if the person who'd been taking away your money for as long as you could remember suddenly decided to join your group of friends? That wouldn't be much fun, would it? Well, that's what happened to Matthew. You see, Jesus didn't care about who was popular or unpopular. Do you care about that stuff? I know I do sometimes. But being popular or unpopular was not a big deal for Jesus. Even though there was a good reason why nobody liked Matthew, even though Matthew had got rich by making other people poor, Jesus still wanted Matthew to follow him. And here's the reason why. Jesus knows that however popular or unpopular we are with other people, every one of us is unpopular with God. Unless something changes so that we can be his friends. Perhaps we're a bit like Matthew. Let's get him back up on the screen here. Perhaps when we see other people with things that we like or clothes that we like, we think, I want to have some of those things. Perhaps when nice things get shared out at home or at school, we find a way to make sure that we get the nicest bit. And that doesn't make other people want to be friends with us, does it? And it doesn't make God want to be friends with us either. God looks at us sadly and he thinks, I didn't make you to act like that. When we act like that, what we're doing is uh, crossing God out of our lives. So let's just show that. Like this. Just gradually, bit by bit, saying, no thank you to God. But perhaps we're not like that. Perhaps we're more like the Pharisees. So let's get them back. Perhaps we have lots of friends. Perhaps uh, we're part of the group that everybody wants to be part of. But did you know that doesn't make God want to be friends with us either? When we have lots of friends and we, uh, we can end up spending so much time thinking about pleasing them that we forget to spend any time thinking about pleasing God at all. And God looks at us sadly and says, I didn't make you to act like that. You see, when we act like that, we're crossing God out of our lives again, just a different way. Just like that. Saying no thank you to God. See, Jesus knows that however popular or unpopular we are with other people, every one of us is unpopular with God unless something changes so that we can be his friends. And following Jesus is the thing that makes that change happen. If we live to get more and more stuff like Matthew did, well, we'll only end up being sad and lonely in the end like Matthew did. If we live to get more and more friends like the Pharisees did, well, we'll only end up proud and mean and jealous in the end 
like the Pharisees did. But God didn't make us for any of that. Jesus doesn't care who has lots of friends and who doesn't, because it doesn't help us either way a little bit in the end. Jesus cares about whether or not we're friends with God. And if we want to be friends with God, what we need to do is follow him. Now you might be thinking, okay, but how do I follow Jesus? I can't just get up and walk after him. I can't see him. So how do I know what to do? But really, it's just doing the same thing that Matthew did. Following Jesus means saying sorry to God for the wrong things that we've done, just like Matthew did. Following Jesus means trusting that Jesus died to pay for the wrong things that we've done, just like Matthew did. Following Jesus means deciding to spend the rest of our lives doing the things that Jesus wants us to do. And uh, uh, it's quite easy to find out what those things are because Matthew and Jesus' other friends wrote them down for us in the Bible. When we read our Bibles, we find that stuff out. Following Jesus means talking to him and asking for his help because he loves to hear us and he loves to help us. You see, when we follow Jesus, God looks at us and says, you're my friend now and I love you, whether you have lots of other friends or not. That's what God made us for. And that's the most wonderful thing that can ever happen to us. And that's what happened to Matthew in the end. So let's pray. Great God in heaven, we thank you so much for this wonderful truth, this wonderful story of Matthew and Jesus. We thank you that even though he had done many wrong things, and even though he didn't have many friends, that you reached out to him and you made a way for him to follow you. And Lord God, we pray that if we're a bit like that, if we're selfish, if we're, um, we find it easy to uh, want things and take things from other people, I pray that you would help us to see that it won't make us happy, that it doesn't make you happy either, and help us to ask for your forgiveness. And if we're like the Pharisees and we're very popular and we have lots of friends and we think we're doing great, please help us to remember that that didn't make them friends of God either. Help us to follow you and say sorry for being all proud and pleased with ourselves. Help us to ask for your forgiveness and to uh, trust you and do the things that you say to follow you as our leader for the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, now the adults did quite well, didn't they? I didn't see any of them wiggling too badly. So um, let's uh, reward them, do you think, with something for, uh, for them. So um, adults, why don't you get on your feet and we're going to get into that Bible passage that's underneath our kids' story here. Matthew chapter 9, uh, verse 9 to 13. <clears throat> and I'll read that to us. Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Now, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Okay, this is God's word. Take a seat. And um, let's see what we get out of this as we come round at it now for a second bite. Uh, we covered this story, didn't we, a few weeks ago? Uh, when we looked at the whole section of Matthew's gospel, you might remember that starts at chapter 8, verse 1. And it runs all the way through to chapter 9, verse 34. But it struck me as I was thinking about uh, preparing for this Sunday with New Year coming up and everything, that uh, this would be a particularly good text for us to go back to and look at a bit more closely. Um, uh, We're spending quite a bit of time with Matthew one way or another, aren't we, over these several months? And it seems natural to want to get to know him as best as we can. Now, uh, hopefully the work that we just did with the kids has given us a bit of an insight into where this story is going. Um, The text sets up a contrast between two different kinds of people for us. Uh, We have popular people and unpopular people. Matthew and the tax collectors and sinners who gather at his house later in the story are the unpopular people. And that makes sense to us, doesn't it? It seems intuitively obvious. The exact details might be a bit new, though. Uh, I certainly didn't realize before I started studying this one uh, that Matthew was employed by King Herod. And that adds a bit of extra spice to the story. Uh, King Herod, of course, was a Jewish king, but he wasn't the king of the Jews in the same way that David had been or uh, any of David's uh, descendants. Herod owed his position and his luxury lifestyle to the Romans. And in Jesus' day, the Romans were an occupying army, weren't they? So you can imagine how collecting taxes for Herod would have come off in these little Galilean towns. Herod himself was shielded from all the resentment up behind the thick walls of his palace um, in the city of Tiberias on the coast of Lake Galilee. But a tax collector like Matthew um, was right out there in the community, A tax collector like Matthew, I guess, must have had to make a pretty self-conscious decision to trade popularity with their neighbours for wealth and influence. Matthew and his colleagues were mercenaries. Um, None of their friendships can have gone that deep, can they? You know, if you knew that all the people that you hung out with had traded their own souls for money, it would make it a little bit tricky to know exactly where you stood with them. Perhaps some of us know that feeling of some of our friendships. But the identity of the popular people in this story maybe does come as a surprise to us. You see, we get used to painting the Pharisees as the bad guys when we read our Bibles, don't we? Uh, And we easily forget when we do that who they really were. Yes, they had all sorts of problems, and Jesus exposes those. uh, But those problems did not include unpopularity. The Pharisees were the the Robin Hood characters of their day. Uh, The Pharisees were the guys who had the guts to challenge Herod and uh, and the Romans and the bigwigs at the temple in Jerusalem. The Pharisees were the people who were actually out in the provinces teaching every man and every woman uh, who cared about every man and every woman or at least cared about being followed by every man and every woman. And it's only when we remember that that I think we can uh, see why their challenge to Jesus here is so potent. See, when we read the question that they ask in our text, 
Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? We easily dismiss that, don't we, as just another kind of clumsy layup that Jesus can feed off to score some cheap points. But when the Pharisees said these words, I think the crowd and probably most of the disciples too were thinking exactly the same thing. Why should you, Jesus, spend time with this man when he's already shown all of us that a nice, cozy, backslapping relationship with the people up at the palace is what he wants in life? This man has betrayed us. This man is part of the problem. Why are you associating with him? But this observation leads us to what I think is uh, probably the most striking fact of the whole story. You see, it wasn't just the Pharisees and the townspeople of Capernaum and the disciples who saw Matthew as the problem. Matthew recognized himself as the problem too. Remember where this incident falls in the book of Matthew. It's right in the middle of that big section that runs from chapter 8 verse 1 to chapter 9 verse 34. And you might remember that whole section of Matthew's gospel is about Jesus confronting chaos and brokenness. Jesus comes down the mountainside rather like Moses does in Exodus 32 just before the the whole golden calf thing. And starting with the leper who calls out to him for cleansing Jesus meets every kind of chaos you could possibly imagine. Illness, demon possession, raging storms, paralysis, social alienation and bereavement. It's a showcase of all the evil effects of the fall. And Matthew places his own story right in the middle of it. He writes it like this. Brokenness, 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 my own life. Brokenness, brokenness, brokenness. Matthew shows us his concept of himself by where he puts himself in his own book. When Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, we're in no doubt, are we, where Matthew stands. Matthew has placed himself in the doctor's waiting room. And when the doctor arrives, it's striking how quickly things change. You see, if you were in Matthew's situation, and maybe some of us here this morning are actually in Matthew's situation or something pretty close to it, having spent a long time working our way down into a really messed up situation in life, making bad decision after bad decision, rejecting God's kindness, rejecting the kindness of other people around us. Well, in that kind of situation, you would think that it would take a long time to work your way back out of it, wouldn't you? If you've lived badly for many years, it should take many years to turn things around, right? But when Jesus meets Matthew in our story, that's not the way it works out. Do you see that just a word from Jesus is enough? Now, I'm sure that Matthew still had a lot of work to do after this meeting with Jesus. All of us do, don't we, when we're converted. But the fundamental change that he needed in life the change that radically altered what he was living for, the change that freed him from the bankruptcy of the life that he'd chosen and that had become a prison all around him, that change happened in an instant. Jesus said, follow me. And Matthew got up and he followed him and he was never the same again. There were none of the normal formalities were there. No careful getting to know you, no uh, kind of probing with both parties doing their research, trying to work out if the other person could really be trusted, uh, trying to work out if it was safe to be vulnerable. 
Because just like every other uh, calling story in the Gospels, uh, there wasn't any need for Jesus to get to know Matthew. There wasn't any need for an interview process or a personality questionnaire or premarital counseling. Jesus knew Matthew inside out before Matthew even opened his mouth. And the same thing is true for each of us. Even if we're not sure yet about all this Christianity stuff, uh, even if it still seems like a giant leap to commit ourselves to a Jesus that we feel we maybe hardly know. Now, there's no harm, of course, in finding out more about him. It's one of the great gifts that we have in the Gospels. We can read and look from the outside and say, hey, who is this guy? But fundamentally, we need to grasp the fact that whether we know a lot about Jesus or hardly anything, turning to him like Matthew did, makes sense because Jesus knows us. Jesus knew all of Matthew's past and all of Matthew's future when he walked up to him that day. When Jesus approached the tax collector's booth, he saw Matthew, the clever teenager with all the answers. Matthew being gradually seduced more and more by money. Matthew distancing himself bit by bit from his childhood friends and family. Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth with all his choices turned into chains. But Jesus also saw Matthew hosting an unlikely dinner party for the King of Kings. Matthew the disciple. Matthew the witness of the resurrection. Matthew filled with the spirit in the upper room. Matthew the gospel writer. Matthew the martyr. Jesus had the whole thing in his hands from the very first moment. And he had the power to shift the train of Matthew's life from one track to the other with a word. That's a word he's willing to speak to each one of us today if we're willing to hear and obey it. But Matthew wasn't the only broken person that Jesus had in his sights that day. Later that evening, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house and Matthew was introducing him to all of his other messed up friends, the Pharisees arrived and challenged Jesus' disciples about what was happening. And uh, Jesus heard what they had to say. They said, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus replies, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now I wonder how you would have responded if you had been one of the Pharisees on that occasion. At first glance, it uh, seems like quite a compliment to them, don't you think? It seems like Jesus is polishing up their sense of superiority, telling them that he's come on this uh, nasty but important mission to reach out to the untouchables and those who have made good choices in life and who don't need his help can just let him get on with it. Jesus seems to be positioning himself as the spiritual garbage collection service, saying, hey, you guys are fine. I'm just here to clear up the trash, don't mind me. And I imagine that the Pharisees might have been feeling kind of satisfied with that. And they might have walked away feeling fairly pleased with themselves. But I don't think that sense of satisfaction could have lasted for long. As they walked home through the dark streets of Capernaum thinking over what had happened and what had been said. I imagine one or two of them suddenly stopped dead in their tracks when the penny finally dropped. What Jesus meant was 180 degrees different from what they thought. The clue lies in that little quote from the Old Testament that Jesus sent them away to ponder. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. 
That comes from an obscure passage in Hosea chapter 6 that was written uh, to the religious leaders of Israel about 750 years before Jesus was born. Just like the Pharisees in our text, the religious leaders in Hosea's day were very strict in what they expected of themselves and of other people. In Hosea chapter 4, we read about the pilgrimages that they made to the holy sites of Bethel and Dan, sorry, and Gilgal. In Hosea chapter 5, we learn that they travel with flocks and herds to make lavish sacrifices. But in Hosea chapter 6, God says to them, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God, not burned offerings. Why? Well, because at the same time they were performing all these religious duties, Hosea tells us they were proud, materialistic, immoral, they were unjust, and they had no compassion for the weak and the vulnerable. And God's verdict on them was devastating. Hosea tells us that their sacrifices had become meaningless to God. He closed his eyes to them and shut his ears to them. They were an offense to him. And he was preparing to pour out punishment against these leaders. And with this little quote from Hosea, can you see what Jesus is doing? Picking up that whole image and saying to the Pharisees, you guys are those guys. Yes, I came to help the sick, not the healthy. And you guys are as sick as you could be. Even the question that the Pharisees asked Jesus here shows us how wrong they have things, doesn't it? Jesus was showing mercy in this story, living out the message of Hosea chapter 6, that God would rather see us being his hands and feet in the world and reaching out to the lost and the unlovely than wasting our time with empty religious duties. But when uh, the Pharisees saw Jesus offering mercy, breaking the rules and reaching out to the lost and the unlovely, all they could think to do was to try and stop him. And so their behavior showed how far their hearts were from God's heart. Are you like that? I know I see that kind of attitude in my own life rather too often. And it's not good. You see, when we hear Jesus say, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick, we naturally assume he's making some kind of horizontal distinction, a distinction in healthiness between us and the people around us. That comes so easily to us, doesn't it? When we're so used to comparing uh, our lives with other people, making these kind of horizontal distinctions. That was what the Pharisees were doing. They looked at the tax collectors and the sinners that Jesus chose to have dinner with, and they thought, we're so much better than them. Why would God want to have anything to do with them? Horizontal, horizontal, horizontal. But Jesus doesn't care about our horizontal distinctions. He finds them profoundly uninteresting. Jesus is making a vertical distinction here. He's not asking how healthy my life is compared to my neighbor, but how healthy my life is compared to my maker. Jesus is asking how my life looks compared with what it was supposed to be. Jesus is asking how my life compares to the life that God made me to live and that I have the responsibility to live and that I will be held to account for living one day. And that vertical comparison shows us that every one of us is sick, doesn't it? Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. And as the psalm says, there is no one righteous, not even one. 
The message of Jesus was humiliating, wasn't it? Perhaps that's why the Pharisees couldn't accept it. Perhaps that's why some of us can't accept it either. But as we close, I think Jesus would want us to see that it wasn't just humiliating. Beyond the humiliation, there was hope. Matthew was humiliated in this story for sure, wasn't he? Everything he had named as an achievement in his tax collecting days had to be renamed for what it was uh, when he became a follower of Jesus. No doubt he had many sorries to say and many debts to pay back. But Jesus didn't just come to expose the sickness of Matthew's life. Jesus came to heal it. In fact, just before the quote from Hosea 6 that Jesus applied to the Pharisees who wouldn't acknowledge their need, we find one of the most wonderful promises of redemption in the whole Bible for people like Matthew who will acknowledge their need. It goes like this. Come, let us return to the Lord. He's torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He's injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, He will restore us that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him for as surely as the sun rises, he will appear and he will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. 750 years before the birth of Jesus, Hosea prophesied that God would restore him and us with him on the third day see that powerfully fulfilled in the resurrection as surely as the sun rises he will appear wrote Hosea 750 years before it actually happened on the first Christmas and now Jesus comes to us like the spring rains that water the earth offering forgiveness bought at the price of his own blood whether we're tax collectors or Pharisees whatever it is that we need to leave behind as we face this new year Jesus has earned the right to say, follow me. And if we're willing to acknowledge our need and follow him, our lives will never be the same again. Let's pray. Jesus, this story shows us that you are um, so different from us. We're grateful to you, so grateful that you came to your world as a man, as someone that we can relate to. And yet when we see you striding into this situation with complete knowledge of Matthew's whole life, we recognize that you are more than we could or ever will be. That you are not just a man, but God himself. And yet it's, it's mind-boggling to us that you would do what you did, that you, you moved towards these people with all their messiness and their mistakes and their sin Um, and God we see ourselves in that same place and I pray that you would give us eyes to see that God if that doesn't come naturally Lord for many of us there's that Pharisee streak that part of us that um, doesn't see it that is all focused on the horizontal that looks around and sees people all so much worse than us doesn't realize uh, how our lives compare when we look up, see what we were supposed to be and how far short of it we fall. So I pray, God, that you might convict us, help us to own 
the diagnosis like Matthew did. Help us place our own lives amid the sickness and the brokenness of our world. Help us to see how we let you down every day. And help us to uh, then hear that amazing, gracious call that the holy God of the whole universe would walk into that kind of wreckage and say, follow me. I pray that you'd help us to get to our feet and follow you. That our lives might be changed. That you might be honored. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So just like Neil started with um, through, uh, just speaking to the children, we're going to as a worship team, we just put this first song here just so that the kids can sing along with us. So why don't we all stand and sing this out. I am a friend of God.
days he will revive us and on the third day he will restore us that we may live in his presence let us acknowledge the Lord let us press on to acknowledge him for as surely as the sun rises he will appear he will come to us like the winter rains like the spring rains that water the earth Lord God I can't help uh, thinking of the situation in which Hosea wrote this 750 years before your birth was not a good time to be a Jew um, with the Assyrians coming marching through with everything that they knew crumbling around them what boldness to write what he wrote that as surely as the sun rises he will appear even when it looked like it would never happen but 700